Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson and Laura Crow. Hi there. For We Like Movies, AFI Top 100, number 80, The Apartment. Matt, you wanna you wanna introduce this a little bit and tell us uh, tell us a little about uh, about the return of Laura Crow here. <laughs> I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty excited uh, podcast wise. I'm pretty excited friend wise. I'm pretty excited uh, evening wise. Yes, uh, Laura Crow. Uh, you know, friend of the podcast was here during our legendary Titanic episode, right? <laughs> and also a sometime member of the Fantasy Film League. And I'm coming I'm, back, guys. I'm, yeah, okay, good. I was about to say, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm hoping There was that only one winter just, that I didn't do it. You just sat out this last season, right? Yes. I'll be back. Well, considering that you told us that you just watched The Shape of Water within the last week, maybe 2017 was the year for you to sit. It was sit a good year out. to take a break, for sure. Matt, don't don't bring that up. We want easy money. We want free money. That's what this, I said. This, so. You guys missed my extra money in the pool yeah, of it great. all. Well, for what it's worth, Laura, I, I'm very happy to say that I came in second place, but it was oh. a distant, distant second. Oh, uh, wow. Our, fr- our friend Grant basically ran the table this year so uh you, you you were probably smart to sit this thing out because he seemed to be completely dialed into both shape of water and um three billboards theoretically this year should have been wide open but he uh really dominated us it was, it was kind of pathetic actually impressive um, yeah we, we should have a, a i think i have another two uh teams that will join as well so i think we're going to expand this oh, wow. it, should be, it should be a lot better Ooh, cool. big, big money on the line is there a cap i, I apologize that we're we're going off on a tangent <laughs> here but would there ever be a cap like you're in you're in lots of different sports you know fantasy yeah, football fantasy sure. baseball is there a, is there a cap is there a mathematical reason to ever have a cap on a league well, the, the the thing about fantasy sports is it's fantasy so you can make it up as you go along really so no, <laughs> unless we decide to make one, and then there will be, right? And, and, and also, you know, these podcasts are supposed to exist outside of time and space. Yeah, sorry. Um, so, sorry so we shouldn't really, but, but that's, that's okay. You know, <laughs> no one will know. It's fine. This, um, the idea is to keep this all evergreen so that you could literally <laughs> yeah. Yeah, go back and hop in on any AFI movie and, uh, and it, would, it would be evergreen. But uh, Yeah, hashtag evergreen content. <laughs> um, all right, bring us back on track then. All right, here we go. So, The Apartment. This is a movie I, I was uh, confiding with, with Matt earlier. I thought I had seen it. I don't think I had seen this movie, Matt and Laura. I don't think I had seen this movie. Maybe I had seen it in high school. I thought I had watched it in college. I don't remember this film. 
And, and, and you know when I realized it is when I heard the quote in this movie that was Laura Crow's email signature yes. that I did not know the origin of. <laughs> Would you like to tell people. tell the people uh, what that was? I would. Um, I was just looking at one of the posters on IMDb, and it says a lot of this similar language. But the quote of all quotes is, "That's the way it crumbles, cookie wise." Said by our beloved C.C. Baxter, the protagonist of the film. That's that's what I was attempting to uh, reference earlier when I was saying oh, I was no. excited podcast wise. But oh, perfect! Just <laughs> oh. to, I'm glad that that landed. You know, oh, so so. so I'm elegantly. sorry you would explain a reference. That's <laughs> that sucks. Story of my life. I was ready. My well, mic wasn't on yet. <laughs> it gives. <laughs> it's a nice. It's a perfect segue into um, some of the notes that I took for this film because I actually was paying attention this time to every single instance of that um, mm-hmm. of that particular turn of phrase. So there's this weird, for whatever reason, Billy Wilder and Izzy Diamond were obsessed with the idea of, you know, hyphen wise, dash wise or whatever, all over this film for some reason. Maybe you guys have a, you know, a more sort of philosophical idea about what he's trying to say with that. But I paid attention. I wrote every single one of them down. Do you want to hear oh, all wow. the different instances in the film? I, I can't. I would love to. I can't vouch Please for do. I mean, Let's I go. very well could have easily missed some, seeing as this, this idea kind of came to me 30 seconds after the movie started. Right. But all right. <laughs> so at one point, somebody mentions premium-wise, mm-hmm. billing-wise, October-wise, manpower-wise. Efficiency-wise, promotion-wise, percentage-wise. A lot of these obviously have to do with the insurance company. Gratitude-wise, decency-wise, otherwise-wise, which I think That's is a good one, one. too. <laughs> Um, police wise, newspaper wise, marriage wise, cubalic wise, (laughs) (laughs) solution wise. And then at some point, uh, somebody says divorce wise. And then I put in parentheses, that's very wise because that's the line that follows divorce. Yes. Yeah. Uh, when you say them all row like row like that, uh, they lose meaning, you know? Oh, I just played the whole movie in my head based on what you said. I knew exactly (laughs) where we were in the film. Every wise that you said. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I wrote them down chronologically, so you really yeah. can sort of chart a through line through the film based on that list. So I'm going to need I'll... you to email me that list. I want to make <laughs> an art project out of it for my family. So it's it's important to point out that this was technically Oscar's first time. I've mm-hmm. probably seen this movie 10, let's say conservatively 10 times in my life. I'm a big, big fan. Oh. I adore this movie. But this is Laura Crowe's professed favorite film of all time, which is one of the reasons that she's here. It's a toss-up between this and the sting, but it always has to be this. I really feel that way. And I was thinking about how many times have I seen this? I knew that would come up. And I just, it's as simple as this. I do not remember a time in my life not seeing this film and continually seeing this film. So so l- l- let me ask you this. Let's start here. Why, I mean, this, this is a loaded question, but like, why is this your favorite movie? Yeah, this is all my dad. This is all David Crow, creator of making his daughters love the movies that he loves. And he was single in the 60s in the Coast Guard, living on Governor's Island in New York when this movie came out. Oh, really? And he saw it in the theater, and he completely related to C.C. Baxter's character. And all I remember is my whole life watching this movie since I was that before a kid, you know, when you're not supposed to be watching movies like this, and I didn't understand anything of it. So I grew up quoting it, my sister and dad and I quote it all the time. And it just became something that was very, very symbolically bonding our family together, very nostalgic, of course, and then just have found 
my own personal love for this movie time and time again. So I think it's always, it's a little bit playful, but it's super melancholy. Um, oh, definitely yeah. touches on some very, very heavy issues. Jack Lemmon has always been a, a family favorite of the Crow family, and we love Shirley MacLaine. It was just a recipe for a perfect film. I've since shown people this film, but only very selectively because I know it's not for everybody. It's definitely, you could think it's a slower paced film. It's black and white, what's happening. And I was reading the IMDb description of it, which I think is very misleading. So if you were to pick the pick this DVD up and look at it or stream it or whatever the kids are doing these days and say, oh, I'm going to read the tagline. It might not be that interesting. It's so much more than what it appears to be, which probably at the time was just some fluffy rom-com with heavy undertones. It's so much more than that. And that is proven in all the Academy Awards it won. And I think how it stands the test of time. What, what is the what is the tagline? A man tries to rise in his company by letting its executives use his apartment for trysts, but complications and romances of his own ensue. I absolutely disagree with him trying to rise in his company by letting his executives use his apartment. I don't think his motivation is to rise in the company. I think that happens secondary and he likes it. And why not? You're getting promotions. You're getting to rub elbows with the executives. I do not think that's his intention at all. I hate the word trysts. All right, go on. <laughs> you haven't had it's enough. Like, it's like moist. Yeah, you have more trysts. It was. It was. You're you're saying that that wasn't his motivation for allowing the oh, apartment to be yeah, used for that. Yeah, there's a scene that so explains what, what? it, when, and I genuinely believe him. And and maybe I'm wrong because I also thought that. Holden Caulfield was the dream character of all men, and later he's in a loony bin. But so I clearly misunderstand what people are saying in, in stories. But he <laughs> says, Well, it just happened once when somebody was going to a banquet and needed an apartment to change, and I gave him the key. And then all of a sudden, all these people were suddenly going to banquets. And I think he genuinely understands but turns a blind eye but doesn't understand what's happening to an extent that doesn't make him naive per se but just makes him unmotivated in that way he's he's pure he's too genial he's too much of a pushover and he said yes one time basically just out of the goodness of his heart it had nothing to do with preconceived notions or or underlying motivations or ulterior motives or whatever he obviously that's, that's knows really what's point. happening eventually but i don't think that it is any sort of malicious activity to get him ahead in the company. If that is the read on the character, that he is um, doing it out of, uh, if he's not doing it to move up in the company, I feel like that makes him sort of morally corrupt then, right? Like he knows that he's aiding and abetting uh, multiple infidelities at any given time, right? Like, and he doesn't seem to be bothered by that. And the beginning of the movie, he's only bothered by just how he's now, it's inconveniencing him, right? You just see him. He doesn't have friends outside of work. He doesn't necessarily have a big social pool. And so it's almost like a stimulation comes at him, which is, can I use your apartment Thursday? And he says, yes. Do I think he knows what's going on? Yes. But I don't think he's doing it for these ulterior motives. Well, there's an interesting, the film has an interesting sort of take on the idea of looking the other way, right? Because basically it was made at the height of the Hayes Code. It is, you know, it was made and came out in 1960. So Billy Wilder from the research that I did wanted to make a film about 
adultery, infidelity, sort of a sex farce, but he knew he couldn't really deal with those things explicitly. So he had to get around them in sort of uh, a euphemistic Mm -hmm. kind of way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the movie really kind of like tiptoes and dances around the specifics of what's really going on in a way that's eerily similar to what Jack Lemmon's character C.C. Baxter is doing, right? Like he's really kind of just like tiptoeing around, like not ever really saying to the people who are asking for the key what the key is for, or what's going on in his apartment. They're always talking about booze or about friends or about late night activity. Yeah, <laughs> it's always about like the yeah the aftermath. He never whatever, cleans right? his about sheets the during the movie. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. That's true. You think he'd be doing that every? You think he'd have his own? Well, they find things in the couch, so maybe it just all happened on the couch. I don't know. Maybe that was a little extreme. Now that talking it out loud, I thought, okay, I really just think he's such a good guy, genuinely. And so I don't, I don't see how he could be plotting at home. This is what I'm going to do to get ahead. It's, I don't think it's that black and white. I think it is what Matt was saying about this fun dance around a taboo situation. You know, if he's getting raises and he's getting into the executive washroom and he's getting higher and higher on the, on the floors in the building, I think he separates what's actually happening. But the scene in the bar when he kind of has his own little romance with Margie McDougal, he does say, well, we should just go to my apartment. Everyone else does. So obviously he knows what's going on. He's not like some strategic corporate shark. Like that's for goddamn sure. Right. And, you know, I I keep writing in my notes here, uh, you know, dude, guy's a walkover, dude's a wuss, like he needs to stand up for himself. And it's it's very frustrating because he doesn't get any of, he doesn't reap any of the rewards until pretty late in the movie. And there's still like not amazing rewards, the executive washroom. We don't even get to see the executive washroom. I wish we got to see a scene (laughs) in that washroom. Like, yeah, what what the, uh, (laughs) him enjoying the washroom, like that would have been great. But but the movie is kind of like it's kind of about that. It's kind of about taboos and about like how we deal with taboos euphemistically and how we sort of like deal with them socially. And so, I mean, the movie really is a, a sex farce. And I think that's part of the reason that it was kind of controversial when it came out. And I, I was reading that uh, Fred McMurray for years after the release of the film, he was dealing with little old ladies coming up and like smacking him <laughs> with read their purse too. or whatever. <laughs> and <laughs> because... it was something, a big deal for him to play this part. He never played the bad guy. So this was a dark character for him to play, which from my dad reading more about this film that he was thrilled to play for once, really happy to have a, a different kind of role. But important to point out that this is this is his second time working with um, Billy Wilder, and the first time was Double Indemnity, where he also plays a very, you know, yeah. obviously morally um, dubious was character. Was that after this so, or before? It was before? Before, 1944. Oh. So we're talking a decade yeah. and a half earlier, but you're exactly right. In the interim, he is known yeah. as this really squeaky clean. Billy Wilder I mean, what is my t- must have just seen some sinister side of him that nobody else <laughs> yes. saw. And you and he's so brilliant in this, and he's so he is such a sinister, just delicious villain mm-hmm. in this. I mean, let's start from the beginning of this movie because I again, like I came at this pretty clean compared to you guys. So my initial reactions to the beginning of this movie, especially, was this is way more methodical and and sort of slow and I even play like I guess than mm-hmm. than I had expected especially at the beginning like it really takes its time and not in a bad way I mean I'm kind of embarrassed about this but in my notes I literally wrote mumblecore question <laughs> mark as a part of this movie because like 
there, there, there's a lot of like the plot's not moving very hard at the beginning of this movie at all like there's just ton of just setup yeah and and scenes really just shading shading cc's character a lot and and his character doesn't really uh i mean you get a lot of context for him you you get a lot of uh lots of voiceover Mm -hmm. yeah lots of voiceover you see who he is but but you know it's still good stuff but again, like it, this movie really takes its time to get going, which That's is true. which is kind of fun. It, I think it gets you on his side right away, so that maybe you're fighting for CC Baxter, even though he might be a pushover. I think if they just went into it and he was this schmuck that loans his apartment to everybody, we wouldn't care about him as much. So all the setup of his single life and all the statistics he knows and where he works and what he does and his rent was this much and then they put it in an air conditioning and now it's this much. There is all that setup and I think that is so that we are endearing ourselves to him. He works for Consolidated Life, right? Which I think is the most adorable, <laughs> like such a beautiful screenwriting way to really like set us up for what the you know the purposes of this film are going to be. Right, and then the the analogy of the apples in a barrel too. That's kind of similar to Consolidated Life, comparing everybody to everybody in the office. Oh, there's only four apples, five apples, bad apples in the barrel, no matter how large the barrel is. So it does kind of talk about that throughout the film, about there being so many people, especially set on the island of Manhattan. And then all of a sudden, it's concentrated. It's a consolidated life. All of a sudden, there, um, he says at the end of the film, spoiler alert, um, you know, I was shipwrecked among whatever a million people. And I saw a footprint in the sand. And there you are. It's all about being surrounded by so many people in this crazy world, but having such a small circle in your immediate life, which is what happens to all of us. Yeah, and in that regard, it is it is kind of like a perfect New York romance, right? Just in terms of like all the numbers and all the statistics that you're bringing up, I just want to point out that uh, he lit, his apartment is in on 67th Street, just a half a block west of um, Central mm-hmm. Park, which is about 50 blocks south of where I'm living Right now, he pays $85 a month for his one-bedroom apartment. Sort of pulled up street easy here uh, when I was like working through my notes before we started this thing. And uh, a one-bedroom apartment on 67th Street, <laughs> a half a block from uh, Central Park West, will run you $3,300 yeah. a month today. Different times. Which is actually cheaper than I expected before I started this research project. I've definitely combed those streets looking for his brownstone apartment. <laughs> <laughs> I did read that they even had to ugly up the apartment, according to the production designer, to make it less uh, spacious than than uh, they're used to in sort of uh, movie apartments, right? To make to make it seem worse than it actually than it actually was, and still 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 keep the the space you need to actually you know harder film to that. tell in a black and white film. You know, you don't really notice the pictures that he has on the wall are kind of like a college guy having pictures on the wall. They're unframed. They're just prints of art that he's seen in museums. You know, the Picasso reference to me being black and white, you really don't get to see that the way that if it was in color and I'm sure the audiences, when this film came out, they recognized all that immediately kind of takes an extra second for us to kind of notice the specifics of his apartment that don't make it so glamorous. But little things, cute things like the little Christmas tree, you know, lighting the gas stove and how people don't understand that because it's a little bit low budget. You know, he's he's thought of as the Lothario and like everybody thinks that it's, it's crazy all the things that are happening in his apartment. Oh, my God, he's at it again. It just made me think that like if you were doing that nowadays, 
the superintendents or the landlord. I mean, you would be evicted with them. <laughs> like, right. I just think about nowadays we're so reactionary about like, oh, well, then let's let's call somebody. Let's call the cops. Let's call the landlord. Let's do something about this. As opposed to in, this is a very quaint environment here where there's like, oh, he's at it again. I was up all night. <laughs> but the landlord <laughs> does get involved. You know, she says this is a respectable apartment. Right. But she doesn't take action right. against him or something. I'm just I'm just used to people taking, you know, taking dramatic actions nowadays or suing you. He gets heartily nagged by the uh oh, well since na- we're dancing around him dr dreyfus is definitely one of the best characters obviously in this he, film he got he, nominated for a uh, best supporting actor i believe right he did i don't remember if he won i Jack think he just Khrushchev. got nominated real mensch that guy yeah <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's important that you bring that word up because the entire point of the mm-hmm. film is him moving from a schnook to a mensch mm-hmm. right exactly yeah and Dr. Dreyfus represents the other father figure as opposed to Fred McMurray's Sheldrake on one side and Dr. Dreyfus on the other. The idea about moving towards being a mensch, moving further away right. from, become, from turning into Sheldrake. And choosing to be a human being. Let me ask you guys this, because, I again, I'm coming in fairly clean. Uh, is this movie regarded as a sort of anti-corporate America thing, an anti-capitalistic thing, or is that sort of secondary to the rom-com nature of this it was probably way ahead of its time to even be thought of that way definitely feels that way like my, my take on this movie coming in clean was that this is a guy who has sort of been submissive as a person in uh, just because of his job like he is uh, he's doing all these things to sort of climb the corporate ladder in a way, I know this is against your take on the movie, Laura, but it, it seems like if he's a smart guy, he's a with it guy, and he, he has a lot of potential, and he feels like this is maybe his only way out of the rat race, or a, a way to move up in the rat race, because god damn it, like those, those first scenes on the desk and the desk going on into infinity are, it's just, it's sad. and It would be very interesting to see and hear a conversation between Billy Wilder and Jack Lemmon with motivation and and what he was being directed to do and how he was directed to play things. I definitely have heard um, and read things that say when Jack Lemmon was nominated for an Academy Award for this film that people were saying, why was he nominated for playing C.C. Baxter? He was playing Jack Lemmon. That's Jack Lemmon. Other actor friends of his had said that that's exactly who he is. So in other words, this role is as close to him as he ever got as an actor. I don't think he, I don't know if he would say that, but I've read and heard that that's what other actors said about him in this film. I was reading a uh, Shirley MacLaine like interview uh, this morning as we're getting ready for this. And she, and it was, it was about how she had fallen in love with, fallen in love with a number of her co-stars. Uh, but one she didn't fall in love with was Jack Lemmon because he was too nice. <laughs> all right well we're gonna we'll we're obviously gonna bounce around a lot because there's a lot to talk about but just since you brought her name up and since she's the only one of the central triumvirate we haven't uh, really discussed yet let's talk about shirley mclean a little bit Mm -hmm. and how how wonderful she nominated didn't win but nominated it's important to point out that uh lemon was 35 fred mcmurray was 52 and shirley mclean was 26 Mm -hmm. And this movie was made. And this is her, what, her, this is pretty early, right? I mean, she started with uh, Alfred Hitchcock's uh, The Trouble with Harry, I think, and then Around the World in 80 Days. I mean, this is, what, Around her fifth or sixth film? so funny that she was in that. <laughs> Where she plays like an Indian Playing princess. Playing an Indian princess. <laughs> this is about her 10th movie, it looks like. I just looked tenth it up. Film. Okay. 
So she's deep in the midst of being the female member of the Rat Pack at this point. And, uh, and apparently she's hanging out with all these guys. She's hanging out with Billy Wilder. She's hanging out with Jack Lemmon. She's hanging out with Frank Sinatra. She's hanging out with mob guys. You know, she's 26 years old. She's, uh, you know, Warren Beatty's sister. Mm-hmm. Warren Beatty's older sister, right? Isn't she older than Warren Beatty? I think she's older by a tiny bit. And she does, uh, she does Ocean's Eleven and Can Can the same year. She's already done Some Came Running with, um, with uh, Sinatra by this point. So I, I'd say she's, you know, she's a movie star at this point, or at least she's an it girl. But I think this is the movie that really sort of like establishes her as a force, right? If we're looking at this movie in, in the guise of like a rom-com, it's a very atypical female character, I feel like, right? And it, yep. it even until the bitter end, like she is stubbornly in love with this guy, mm-hmm. right? Like, and, and that does not stop. And you know, I, I wanted to bring this up later, but that seems to be a theme throughout the movies. Like, people are who they are. Like, they they, mm-hmm. they stick with who they are. Like, uh, Shell Drake keeps saying he's going to change. He's going to change. He doesn't change. Jack Lemon, uh, C.C. Baxter does, you know, he keeps letting these people walk over him. He, he doesn't mm-hmm. change until the bitter end. She really doesn't change until suicide, really. And even then, mm-hmm. it takes her a little while after that to, to sort of make a different decision. So, like, she is not the sort of manic pixie dream girl that we're, <laughs> that we're used to, despite the pixie cut. Well, how interesting is that, too, that they start off the film mentioning that she had her hair cut and we never see her hair long it's such a weird reference and almost makes me think that they were doing that for mass audiences to be okay with her short hair or something i don't know that's always perplexed me i feel like that that was just to be like she's this girl's different she's She's edgy impulsive maybe even she's not gonna do what people expect (laughs) her to do that's true she's not she's not gonna always say yes to a to a random person asking her out on a date she's not gonna go her heart's not going to go a flutter by some executive asking her on a date. But the whole point of her cutting her hair short is to try and it's not necessarily to get Sheldrake's attention. It's to try and prove to herself that she's like over right, Sheldrake. Because, right? Because yeah, because when says, they you know, I get, like it. when they get long, exactly. He's, yeah, they get together at the at the tiki place, and he says, "The Chinese you know, place." You cut your hair. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, excuse <laughs> me. Where she gets the daiquiri. Um, it's you confusing. Know, you know, daiquiri. I, I look, that daiquiri looks restaurant. delicious, by the way. <laughs> it changes if you see. There's definitely flaws in the film where every time they cut to her, it's at a different level of daiquiri. It's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. It might be one of my favorite scenes in the history of movies because basically she agrees to meet him for a the drink. The first time. The implication this is, is the scene you're talking about? Yeah, the very first time they meet in this restaurant. It's a place they've met before. It's very dark. She, you know, she mentioned to Cece Baxter already that she's meeting a man and she's very cagey about like, well, I thought it was one thing, but it wasn't another and I haven't seen him in a while, yada, yada. So she meets him there. The scene is incredible because it basically goes from her addressing him as Mr. Sheldrake at the mm-hmm. beginning of the conversation to addressing Jeff. him as uh, Jeff, exactly. And then I think even Jeff Deer mm-hmm. by the Jeff end. Jeff Darling. Yes, and then she goes and gets in a cab with him and yeah, yeah. That's yada. interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, I mean, she complete, he completely turns her around. I mean, he he, he succeeds. He wins, and it's so right? funny. He wins that What scene. does he do? He makes her get a drink she doesn't want, makes her stay and eat food she doesn't want to eat. Like, it's all very controlling and strange. He doesn't say anything good to her in that scene, really. He man- he manipulates her perfectly. The hitting on the theme of you are who you are and you love who you love and you can't do anything about it, which is why it's so awesome and great for Cece Baxter at the end to choose 
to be the mensch. You know, he's kind of stuck between these worlds. Yeah, she makes no bones about how she's still in love with this guy ever. Like she, she's always like, "Yeah, I love this guy. I want, I want. This is the guy I want, Sheldrake." Right? Does she even feign regret for getting involved in the situation after the overdose? You know, remember when she talks about the analogy of going to the cemetery and always falling for the wrong guy and just her patterns? I guess that's showing remorse. But the, but I think the point that you're making is that this is not this is not just puppy love and this is not just like falling for your boss like to her it's legitimate like it's a real thing which makes it all the more tragic which is what leads to her eventual decision to try and end it all right despite the fact that it is sort of considered to be a comedy is really fucking playing for keeps right like it's, this movie <laughs> plays rough it's heavy <laughs> yeah I mean <laughs> no, it's, yeah. I. I did want to bring that up because I, uh, you know, I didn't laugh really out loud all that much during the movie. You know, it's mm-hmm. very clever. Like the writing's fantastic. You know, we talk about tone all the time, Matt, but this movie nails the tone. Like it do- never gets too farcical. It never gets too silly. So it really earns the gravitas and the pathos that, that it has, um, which is, as you said, extremely heavy throughout and especially um you know through her uh, through her incident i suppose i don't know what you want to call it but really all the side characters bring the humor and anytime i find myself laughing it's because a line is my favorite or these ridiculous side characters like um mr dobish and and the lady that um that cc baxter ends up talking to at the bar um those people have these crazy wild lines or even the santa claus that's at the line our family Every single year at Christmas, we write a letter to Santa, and he always writes back and says his sleigh is double parked. Like, we quote this movie in our letters to Santa. And those are the lines that really make me laugh in this movie. It's It really isn't, like you said, it's not the three main characters. They're not making you laugh. Ray Walston is such a smiley son of a bitch in this movie. <laughs> yes. Hey, buddy boy. Hey, yeah. um, I about to call you. Yeah, the... Th- <laughs> the three so there's there's basically three mm-hmm. doofus executives who are the ones who are ma- mostly using the apartment besides Ray Walston I don't know the names of the other actors but they're Mr. the ones Kirkaby. who are constantly circling and yeah. Mr. Vandehoff Mr. Mr. Eichelberger there's well, there's four but they're, right? but they're not but they're not there's too okay. doofusy right like that's the thing they're all uh, they're all believably but just sort of shithead take advantage of the guys a notch from everybody else Right, they're playing it ever so slightly more heightened yeah, than uh, than so. our three principles. Yes, yeah, which is important. But I and and so are their so are their girls, right? Like they're they're all they're dating secretaries, they're dating girls, they're dating uh what are they like op they're like telephone mm-hmm. operators, right? Mm-hmm. And they're just like ever so slightly sort of dipping their toe into the hammy place, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, <laughs> what's the one of my favorite um, quotes. Um, either you get yourself a bigger car or a smaller girl. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because they can't get to the apartment at one point, so they have to like go to a drive-thru or something. Here's another quote that we say all the time. The same actress says when he wants to, um, he needs to switch the normal day of their rendezvous. And he says, well, how about Thursday? And she says, Thursday? That's the Untouchables with Bob Stack. And she says it in this <laughs> right. way. Every Thursday it's quoted in our family. It's just ridiculous. If you guys hung out with us for one night, you would just have apartment overload. Um, I have to tell you this really endearing thing before the podcast is over, which whenever, hopefully it's never over. There's times where I would come home from college for Christmas, whatever, and my dad would have in the kitchen a tennis racket 
like a modern tennis racket with strands of pasta, cooked pasta hanging from it, just sitting there on our counter like it's normal. And I would walk in and I would notice it and we'd have just a laugh. And that was all. The whole point was just to make me laugh and think of the apartment. And then one year for Christmas, I got my sister a compact and I shattered the mirror and gave it to her. Well, so there's a lot of I, I, warped crow it's love. Almost, it's almost as if you're teeing me up, Laura, because you're literally like, you're you're putting me onto the every note that I have next on my list here because the the whole cracked mirror thing might be one of like the cleanest most elegant little pieces of business mm-hmm. um, that I've ever seen. Like it's one of the smartest screenwriting details. That's exactly what I wanted to bring up. That was it, 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 that sort of business ha- is always clunky, and this one was so seamless and throwaway and and especially when the audience already knows we already know what's happening it wasn't a surprise to us we had to see him be surprised i just i I feel like if any if anybody like said i don't get what the whole big deal is with billy wilder like why does everybody gush about billy wilder like what's the big deal i just I, i feel like you could just take that particular screenwriting detail and just be like look at the way this is fucking handled that's all you need to know about billy wilder's genius is just this cracked compact and the, and the way she plays it off and makes it part of her character mm-hmm. and you get part of her like it's yeah it really is right because she's never lying like she's never really keeping no. anything from him you know she's 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 keeping names and things secret but she's 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 always like sort of gushing to him about like this guy who's fucking right? me over or whatever like she's always telling him what's going on she's just holding back the name mr shelby well, how interesting that Jack Lemmon's character doesn't acknowledge it either in that moment. I know he's too shocked. He's piecing it together, but he doesn't really say anything. That's great writing to me. That That's an amazing choice. Sort of an ancillary part of this too. More business is the, uh, the uh, secretary getting drunk and saying too much. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's <laughs> yeah. also just a little perfect piece of exposition business mm-hmm. that needs to happen. And it, 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 it all, it all works and it makes sense. And they, they sort of uh, tease that with with her uh, listening, being a being a voyeur from the very beginning too. And then she ends up contact. She she listens in, and then she gets fired. And then she contacts the wife, mm-hmm. and then the wife breaks up with him. And I mean, it's just it's just this beautiful, perfect like you know dominoes falling. Like it's just I really feel I, I I've taken so many screenwriting courses over the last fifteen years of my life, and this is a film that just constantly is brought up as just like perfect elegant interlocking pieces of 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 well-delivered exposition that never feel forced Mm -hmm. yeah and that's just that was just part of billy wilder's genius i think was just understanding the way to tell a story without ever telegraphing the fact that you're telling a story i mean i think it's interesting that this film is sort of looked at as the um the inspiration for uh sam mendes and alan ball's uh, american beauty Mm -hmm. uh alan ball sam mendes kevin spacey all talked about the apartment as things they were constantly referencing or going back to when they were making American Beauty. I didn't know that. Down to like there's sequences in American Beauty where you like you see Kevin Spacey at in his cubicle and there's like a um, forced perspective situation where you're like looking into the background and seeing like the entire office kind of receding. Mm. And, you know, Kevin Spacey and Jack Lemmon were very good friends because they'd met on the set of uh, Glengarry Glenn, Glenn mm-hmm. Ross. And he said he basically patterned his performance in that film after Lemmon's performance in The Apartment. Hmm. When Baxter first 
comes on to Fran or like makes his intentions, you know, like when he first sort of proposition is the wrong word when he first sort of like makes an ovation towards Fran, I notice that she shuts him down immediately, right? Yeah. Like she's so used to shutting everybody in her life down. You know, she's so used to these executives hitting on her all the time. She just shuts him down immediately. And I love the fact that the movie sort of like requires him to work a little bit at actually getting her attention. <laughs> right. And I just think it's very, it's it's a much, it's a much more unique example of a romantic comedy or whatever you want to call it, or a much more progressive example of it, considering how difficult it is for these two to ever finally actually get together. Does he ever get together with her? Really? Um, <laughs> it's a good point. It's a good point. The climax of the movie is still That's sort true. of a question mark for sure. It's very graduate-esque. Right. Yeah, I, I was going to bring that up. I, I wonder if he's just a nice little rebound for her and, you know, he's he, she sees him as sort of a, you know, cool guy to hang out with while she gets better and figures her shit out. She definitely chooses him at the end. There's so many reasons and examples why and her taking off her coat and the line, the famous last line of the film, which depending on what mood you're in can mean anything. I've watched that movie and, and had that line blow my mind, you know, after seeing it for the umpteenth time and I can watch it again and I can get very like, what does happen with these guys? I gotta say he is extremely (laughs) unsuave. At the end of this movie, right? Like professing his love to this person who is not going to, uh, you know, say I love you back, uh, Mm -hmm. who just wants a good game of gin, you know. Uh, (laughs) How terrible would it be if she says, I love you too, end of movie? It would have been awful. Oh, God. Yeah, it would have been It's got a Casablanca ending, you know? Yeah, I mean, we started this conversation, I think it was, Laura, you mentioned that the the significance of it was that every person is themselves for better or for worse. Yeah, Oscar said that, and then we focused on the fact that you choose that at the end. And to me, it's very clearly obvious that she is choosing this new life because when she is in bed recovering, she says, why can't I ever fall in love with somebody nice like you? She's at that point still who she is without choice, quote unquote. And so for her to leave Fred McMurray New Year's Eve, leave him in the middle of the midnight song, run in the same way that like Harry runs to Sally. And when Harry met Sally, you want the rest of your life to start immediately. Knows all these details about him that she didn't know before. What about your knee? How are you doing? Like we'll send him a fruitcake every Christmas. She very much implies (laughs) that they are together and she takes off her coat and it is a choice of a new life for her with a good guy finally. Well, I mean, that's that. That's how you see it. That's great. I I love that. Um, I I will say that something I really, really appreciated about this movie, and you brought up like nice guy uh, stuff, the fact that he never pines or thinks that he like deserves her in any way or is like, or is like, I I can't believe she's not with me or any of that stuff. Like that, I, I really liked, I think that was a very endearing part of his character like he, very he dignified never went, about his love he was extremely dignified and never was like oh what the fuck like this is bullshit like she should be requiting my love right he was right. just going about his life I, I thought that was fantastic also kind of shows how stable he is as a person even though he's perceived as unstable by the neighbors and the landlord and maybe as the audience he's perceived as being a pushover like maybe cc baxter is the most solid character in the whole film well i i mean i i think he he definitely grows right like he finally he grows, says no sure. at the end of the movie he finally learns how to not be a pushover and he says fuck you i'm out yeah. and I, I think that was a definitely a, a big moment 
<laughs> but but then even till the end, he sort of he needs to get you know the straw blowing tactic doesn't work on him from uh, mob <laughs> mob guy's wife. Uh, uh, I mean, I, 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 I've never seen a, that that straw tactic not work. So the fact that he was immune to that is crazy. Well, it's it's proof positive of how incredibly heartbroken he is and how sort of hung up he is on Fran, right? right? Oh yeah, it's an incredibly unrealistic sequence or at least in my experience it's unrealistic of never been hit on by a mob it's wife extremely wasteful on, the straw. on new year's eve yeah. <laughs> no but uh but i'll get there i'll get there i promise there will, come the a, there will come a time wore, then you'll get it instantly no no, no matt don't listen to her never wear that bowler hat it's a terrible <laughs> idea well that's significant right because he gets the bowler hat after the promotion mm-hmm. and then when he leaves when he finally like throws the job back in sheldrake's face mm-hmm. he he puts the bowler hat on the uh, janitor on his Exactly. Out, right? So there's a wonderful visual motif that follows that hat. It's it's weighing. And on they him. even say they call it the young executive. Yeah, That's what yeah, the name of that hat is. <laughs> oh, that hurt my heart when I heard that. That's so brutal. Young executive. <laughs> hat. I love the way he says it. He's so excited about it. Should I, he tilt it to the side? Right before he's crushed. Yeah, and then that's I. To me, I feel that's the best scene in the film when he's like a yeah. little bit drunk and he brings her to his office and he talks to her about the hat and we bring out the infamous mirror. I, to me, that is sort of like the centerpiece scene of the film. Mm-hmm. I feel it's right, and it's also right before like shit gets really crazy. True. I got a couple things here uh, about this film's Oscar anointment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was nominated for uh, 10 and won 5. It won Best Picture on April 17th, 1961, which was uh, crazy to think about the fact that it was happening in April. I mean, that was the Oscars are going until the fourth month of the year in 1961. That was the first year that the uh, Oscars were on ABC. Ah. Cool. The first year that they involved a uh, red carpet beforehand. Really? Mm-hmm. That was the last time that a black and white film won Best Picture until Schindler's List. Yeah. Which basically means wow. that The Apartment is the last quote-unquote real black and white right. film, right? I'm surprised that the mu- the music didn't get more more nods. The music is wonderful. The music is exceptional, but I think part of the problem is that it's a little bit of a mishmash of of pieces pulled from different places. Like Fran, the the main love theme, which I think is actually ironically titled Jealous Lover, <laughs> is from a different film. Right, it's not original score. It's not original for for the apartment. So it was for a film that came out in 1949. It's called Jealous Lover and but it is so romantic and so kind of iconic and I think it's much more associated with this film than it was for the one it was written for. Yeah. Definitely. So we typically end these by saying, do we think it deserves being on the list? Do we think it deserves being uh, where it is? And I would like to offer that up to you first, Matt. Go ahead. The the film originally hit number 93 on the uh, 1997 AFI list. It's obviously been bumped up to number 80 at this point. I would not only consider it to be a, a staple of this list, I think it probably should be a little bit higher. Yeah. Billy Wilder has three films on the list. Some Like It Hot, Double Indemnity. Uh, Double Indemnity comes in at number 29. Some uh, The Apartment comes in at number 80. And Some Like It Hot comes in at number 22. And I mean, this is just personal preference. I think this is his best film. I would put it higher, and I would put it higher than Some Like It Hot, personally. Okay. Laura, do you have any opinion on the matter? I completely agree with what Matt said about it being, um, should be higher than Some Like It Hot, for sure. I don't know the credentials for what they base their list off of in a way that you (laughs) might, and I 
as you both know, <laughs> lead with my heart on all these movies and things. And so I think it should be definitely, you know, glancing at the list, knowing what's on there, taking my feelings aside as much as possible. I would put it in top 25. For me, the, the, this ranking seems about right in a, like in a vacuum if I were to make my list of the top 100. But there are double handful of movies above it on this list that I would put below the apartment, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? I, th- I think 80th best, you know, American film of all time. That sounds sounds about right to me. It's nothing to be ashamed of, that's for sure. No, this movie's terrific. You consider this to be basically the first time you've ever really, really watched the film. Yes, exactly. And you're watching it with a lot of baggage, like knowing that we're going to talk <laughs> about this, knowing that it's on the AFI list, knowing that it won Best Picture in 1960. Were your expectations really tempered by all that like going into it were you already sort of like a little bit jaded sort of being like come on movie impress me i thought it was gonna be more some like it hot seven year itch e right mm-hmm. i thought sure i thought it'd be sure, more sure. like that I, did, I wasn't expecting the sort of both like how methodical it was gonna be and how heavy it was gonna be mm-hmm. um and so i was i was taken off guard by that but in a good way so yeah i mean it probably deserves another watch for me to really fully marinate my expectations were i, I would say my expectations were exceeded by this by this film this this movie was was fantastic and such a triumph of of, of screenwriting especially you know just talking about the the little business that you know all, all the little pieces just fit together so well if we just think about romantic comedies as a whole uh this movie is so atypical both in character and plot the performances were also spectacular. I yeah, I I really loved this movie. I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. I'm sure Laura is as well. I, yeah. I mean, you really can't overstate the brilliance of Billy Wilder as a screenwriter, especially considering the fact that English was not his first language, mm-hmm. and just his acumen, you know, with just vernacular and wit is is incredible. And you know, he was nominated for 21 Oscars in his career. He won. Uh, five, I believe. And, you know, Laura mentioned, what, what was the quote, Laura? Might as well go to my place. Everybody yeah. else does, right? Yeah. Earlier in that scene, he, she says, she, you know, she's grilling him about his family or whatever. He says, I said I had no family. I never said That's I had an empty apartment. That's a good line. <laughs> it's so good. And, you know, I just like, there's so much witty, interesting, melancholy stuff mm-hmm. going on here. I, I really give extra bonus points anytime a movie like sticks the landing. Right, and it's so hard to do. Yeah, and there's so many great Truly. movies that don't stick the landing. Holy shit! Shut up and deal is about as good as you can get. <laughs> it's really good. Really, really, it's it's you know, yeah. like we said, it's it's graduate esque and just yeah, yeah. You you can you can you can interpret it any way you really want, but nonetheless, it's it's so heartwarming and beautiful. It is. Yeah, not not unlike uh, well, nobody's perfect from uh, some like it hot, right? Yes. <laughs> This is a little deeper than that. But I'm with you, Laura. I mean, I I guess maybe I'm a hopeless romantic, and then I do, at the end, feel that this is, you know, that that is her version of of declaring her love for him. And, you know, I'm the kind of guy who thinks that the the spinning top eventually falls over at the end of Inception (laughs) and yada, yada. Like, I could be as cynical and and as dark-hearted as the next guy. But here's a surprise. I like to think that Rhett Butler comes back to Scarlett O'Hara at the end of that film, so I'm all sorts of messed up. Do you think they they're happy five years after the graduate ends? Boy, oh, that's why we never got that film. Not meant to know. Yeah, I think part of the genius of the graduate is 
if they truly, I mean, the graduate was made in what, 1967, I think. Yep, exactly. I'm looking at it right, right now on the list. Yeah, I think the graduate is kind of about the death of a movement or the death of an age, right? I think the graduate is kind of about like reaching an apex of this movement in the 1960s and realizing like, oh, we've got no place else to go and then having to grow up. Mm-hmm. Well, Matt, so, we'll, uh, we'll get there in 63 films, so don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of that, Laura, you mentioned The Sting earlier, and it's one of my favorite films as well. And I think it's a travesty that that movie is not on this list, because I really think it should be. In lieu of a Sting conversation, which maybe we can have on our own time at some point as a bonus episode or something, would you like to join us for the Butch Casty and the Sundance Kid episode? That'd be fun. As kind of like a consolation? It was the consolation prize to The Sting, for sure. Laura, how about you look at the AFI Top 100 yeah. List from the the ten year anniversary, and you just okay. tell us okay. what 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 movie really reaches out to you. Great. There's also all the presidents men. I guess we're really going into uh, Redford territory here. Truly, we are. Yeah, I just brought up Butch Cassidy because it's seventy three, so it's coming up right. in in like yeah. you know six seven films or whatever. Yeah. But and then you mentioned uh, Gone with the Wind, and that was something mm-hmm. I've been meaning to talk to you about Oof. because I really would like to lock you down now for Gone with the Wind. Sold. That's my favorite hangover movie. <laughs> <laughs> so five years from now, when we finally get yeah. to Gone with the Wind at number six on this list, we can count on you to be I'm there. there. Right? All right, guys. I think this has been a very successful episode of We Like Movies, AFI Top 100. Any final thoughts? Thank you guys for having me. It's been a pleasure. And everyone go see this film if you have not seen it. This has been a great conversation apartment-wise. I'll say that. <laughs> this has been another another episode of We Like Movies. See you later. Bye-bye.